I am Kalem Astri. Welcome to the latest episode of Engineering Reimagined. Humanity depends on engineering to help solve the wicked problems our world faces. In this podcast series, we explore how, like engineers, people from all walks of life are reimagining the future and their leadership roles in it. Have you ever been inside an unfamiliar train station, running late for your journey, and felt a sense of doom creep in as you strive to make sense of your surroundings and navigate your way? You're laden with bags and suitcases, so it's cumbersome and difficult to move. There are signs providing directions, but they're written in a foreign language. No one is available for you to ask for help. And even if they were, you wouldn't be able to understand each other. For many of us, these sorts of scenarios are few and far between. But for some people, they're sadly a fact of life. People with disabilities, or from other cultures, or those who are aging can struggle in public spaces. This is because traditionally public spaces have been designed to meet the needs of how the majority of people will use a product or space. Many communities today are culturally diverse, yet do our spaces reflect that diversity so that everyone experiences equality of access, comfort and familiarity? Today's interview unpacks the vital role that design can play in creating better communities by taking into account the diversity of people living in these spaces. Join Suds Hetiarici as he speaks to two eminent leaders in this field, including Australia's former Disability Discrimination Commissioner, Graham Innes. Suds is an Associate Director and Mechanical Engineer within Oricon's Built Environment team. He leads Oricon Australia's client management functions for two key clients and is a champion for diverse and inclusive workplaces. Firstly, Suds spoke to Tasneem Chopra, about designing for cultural diversity. Tasneem Chopra is a cross-cultural consultant, author, and activist. Recently appointed an anti-racism champion by the Australian Human Rights Commission, in a TED Talk that went viral five years ago, Tasneem describes herself as a quota queen, listing a number of criteria that define her as diverse in Australia. Tasneem is brown-skinned, female, over 35, and a Muslim who wears a headscarf. Hello, Tasneem. Hi, Saj. How are you? Well, thank you. Now, I understand that you were born in Kenya, have Indian heritage with both of your parents hailing from India, grew up in Bendigo, which is in country Victoria. That's quite a mix, a bit like a pizza with a lot. What are people's reactions to your heritage? Oh, I guess when people usually see me, first of all, there's, there's, I mean, there's a range of reactions. Sometimes people can't reconcile how I sound with how I look. It's like, how does that work, you know? And um, what accent is that? And where are you from? The usual questions that you get asked when you don't fit the mould. Um, and so um, when I tell them, I'm from, um, I actually was raised in Bendigo, which is a country Victorian town, um, last century. And when I tell people I'm from Bendigo, they're like, but where are you really from? And so then you basically know people are asking you, why are you brown? Effectively, that's what it is. So then you, then you, depending on the time and the context, that can be an appropriate question or an inappropriate one. Um, but when I break it down and explain, well, you know, my, I was born in Kenya. I'm fifth generation East African born of Indian origin. Um, they're all like terribly excited and think it's so exotic. And then I say, but I grew up in Bendigo. And there's almost like this heave of like, oh, not so glamorous. Yeah, right. And so has that been confronting for you over time? Have you learned to adapt to those sorts of questions? I or? think I've learned to 
take it head on. So I think initially I would be probably unwittingly apologetic and explain where I'm from. Now I sort of take it, you know, take it, grasp it by the horns, as they say. And, um, and when people have actually commanded, you know, complimented me on my grasp of English and my command of the language, um, I say, well, it's no, it's a Victorian accent. Yep. Central yep. Victorian country accent, Victorian, yeah. country, country Victorian. And when they say you speak really well, I've, I've actually have said, well, you know, you do too. Just keep it up, kind of thing. So you, you can use humour sometimes to deflect that level of veiled cynical racism that people are basically, again, showering upon you, maybe well-intended, but often just to let you know that it's okay that you're here. So I have a similar situation to set the scene for our listeners, and obviously they can't see you or I, but I'm of Sri Lankan descent. Yep. I was born and bred here in Australia, but as you can hear, I have a very broad Australian accent as well, and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I... I support the Aussies in the cricket. So some of my friends actually call me a coconut. So they say, you know, brown ah. on the outside, white on the inside. So I think it's so interesting that you've created a career in this space. What inspired you to become a cross-cultural consultant? I think it's just what you mentioned earlier. It was that evolution of being, you know, being born in Kenya, five generations of family, of being of Indian origin, then growing up in a very parochial country town for most of my life. You find that you're always carrying almost a burden of having to explain why you look the way and why you sound the way you do when you don't, you know, basically represent the host. I guess I channeled that defensiveness and that responsiveness into presentations and conversations and then ultimately the, I guess the consultancy sort of evolved in a more professional context um, as I realised that, you know, Australia is a multicultural nation. Sometimes it handles diversity well. Sometimes it really it fails, it fails miserably at it. I sort of saw this career opportunity as a way of entering that forte and sort of dealing with all different levels of society from grassroots, like schools, community centres, through to state government, then corporate and federal government. And there are all different agencies increasingly over the last 10 years who are grappling with how do we handle this diversity beast? And it always comes back down to the fact that this is Indigenous land. We're all migrants accepting them. And how we then respond and treat others says a lot about us as a nation. Yeah. It's, uh, I remember I had a, a primary school teacher that, you, that you know, when I used to be teased, you know, kids kids when they're little, they don't understand different colours and, you know, you, you stand out. A teacher said to me, she goes, you know, what would you rather, a, block, a, a box of all the same chocolates or a box of totally different chocolates? And I'm like, well, I want a different one because you get to experience different things. She said, it's no different for you and every other child in this classroom. Everyone is different, yeah. but everyone has their, their value to you know, in the in the world and in society. So yeah. back then I didn't really understand it, but I guess now that I'm older, I, I understand what she meant by that yeah. that terminology. Yeah. So, so what does a typical day consist of for you? Oh, I guess a typical day, well, I freelance. So so you wake up when you want. I don't get up for less than, like, you know, five bucks a day. No, yeah. that's not true. <laughs> um, I freelance. So one week will vary from the next. So I have a website and I'm, I have an agent as well, but I work in the space of presenting at schools. Doing, I do a lot of corporate work and I do a lot of emceeing of events as well. Cultural competence training is, is increasingly becoming a topic that corporates, for example, are really interested in. How do we gain traction from our incredibly diverse staff that we have here working for us, which we've not been utilising? Um, and as soon as you sell the fiscal imperative, everyone wants to sort of stands up and listens like, oh, we can monetize our diversity. Um, where in fact, yes, you can, but there's also a moral imperative as well. There's this adage in business that when staff feel respected and included, they perform better. That's not rocket science. One of the questions I want to speak to you today about was that the role that design can play in breaking down the stereotypes and creating inclusive communities 
in particular, I wanted to focus on public places. So I grew up being a, a brown pea in a white pod. Yeah. That's how I explained it. Yep. Um, and it was a small country town. The population was maybe 30,000 back when I grew up. So it was, uh, very, like I said, it was a very small parochial town, um, not very much diversity. But having said that, apart from the occasional racial slur that I might have encountered in the playground, I didn't feel that culturally or racially my difference was 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 a huge thing. And I think that has a lot to do with where Australia was, was politically at the time. So at that stage, I think, you know, I'll just say it was the 70s and 80s, um, the majority of uh, migrants that were coming through um, weren't really trickling down into the country towns. So you didn't feel that your being different was a threat to people. And being of Muslim background, at that time when people thought about Muslims, it's very different to how they think about them now. Back then it was flying carpets and, you know, Arabian nights. Like Aladdin. Pretty much, yeah, Agrabah. Yeah. But, you know, that's how much – That's and then, oh, you don't eat pork. And that was probably, the you know, the strangest thing about you is you didn't eat pork. Um, compare that to now where you're considered a threat to Western civilization. It's shift markedly mm-hmm. in people's public perceptions. So, yeah, I didn't have those experiences as, as markedly as I know young Muslim kids have them growing up today in, in Melbourne in 2019. Very different situation. Back then in, in the earlier when you were young, growing up in Bendigo, did you find that you found anything – different or you found it challenging for public spaces being a, being a Muslim, swimming pools, things like that? Or was back then it was yeah. everyone sort of coexisted and there was no challenges? There, I think it was that. There was a lot of coexistence and respect for the, for the I guess, the religious pluralism at the time because it was very small. People weren't ever threatened. I mean, I did miss the fact because I think I was asked this question in a, about four, four, four or five years ago. Would, would it have been different for you in Bendigo if there had been a mosque? for example, you know, a, prayer, a place of worship. Yep, yep. Um, because I didn't go to my first mosque until I was a teenager and we were driving to Melbourne. And I remember going into a mosque for the very first time and having this this moment of serenity overcome because I'd never seen anything so beautiful and peaceful and tranquil. But I, And it, it never occurred to me that we'll have one in Bendigo because the, I think the population of Muslims by the time I left was like about three families. Yeah. So it hardly qualified. So if you think about more recently where you've been uh, public places. Uh, any sort of thoughts about spaces now? In terms of, you know, our public spaces and inclusivity, I live in Melbourne's northern suburbs and it's a very diverse area, which is Coburg. They say in Australia, one in three Australians are either born overseas or have a parent born overseas. In Coburg, I'd say it's almost even more than that, you know. So there's there's a very high representation of diversity and you see that in a shopping strip on, an, you know, the eateries that you have, that they reflect so much of 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 the Melbourne that I know, you know, you have Italian opposite a Greek place, which is near the an Afghan place, which is around the corner from the Af- the Iraqi place, and then there's a Turkish coffee, and then I mean, there's just everything all in one hub. Everyone gets mentioned. Yeah. Everyone gets included. It's it's a very inclusive space, and I think just by virtue of having those places accessible and central, not hidden away, not in some sort of cluster or ghetto that's out of the town, but very much embedded in what is the the main fabric of, of that particular neighbourhood. That's what I call an inclusive welcoming space. So how are people of different cultural backgrounds excluded by the design of public places and spaces? Are there considerations in our designs that, that engineers and, and architects think about, but they haven't thought ex- inclusively of other religions and other people? So you know, things like unisex toilets, you know, for, for, for sure. most people that might be fine, but for certain religions and sure. people with backgrounds, that might be a challenge. And I think so much of 
that kind of planning hinges on consultation with communities. Right. It's very hard to retrofit and make changes once you've done you, and once things are built. But I think it's essential then if you are going to be inclusive of your clients and your host communities' needs that you engage with them prior to. And, yeah, things like unisex toilets, like nursing rooms, breastfeeding rooms, like having nappy change stations in the men's toilets as well as the female's toilets. Yep. This whole idea that, you know, yep. you know women are going to do it all the time. Um, and then even then how we even negotiate the whole transgender toilet access as well. That's something that's increasingly becoming a topic that we're having mm-hmm. to discuss. I know that there's concepts in what you could loosely call Islamic architecture, for example. And I have friends who run some architectural firms in Melbourne who employ Islamic design principles in buildings of homes and public spaces. In their home environment, um, a lot of Muslim women would choose to remove their veil because they don't have to wear it at home. But if you think of the traditional home design, house design in, in Australia, you got you got a house with a front yard and a backyard, mm-hmm. right? The way it works in Islamic architecture, in like you know, to the book, is that a lot of homes will have no front yard and the house will be built almost like a fortress in the sense that you'll have a, a square building and inside the house is a massive courtyard and open space so that women who then want to you know, unveil and just remove their headscarf have this huge backyard accessible um, that still gives them the privacy but gives them the op- gives them the access of openness and sunlight and garden which is otherwise lost in the contemporary style I, th- I think that's what, that's a very effective example that illustrates how culturally diverse principles can be executed in architecture yeah all right so I'm going to ask you to put on your engineering hard hat for the next question so if you and I were to start designing a public place right now and think maybe a shopping centre mm-hmm. or, or a train station, what should we include that traditionally isn't included in designs? Potentially. Um, I know this is big in Malaysia and part of the Middle East, you'd have a prayer room in the area because that wouldn't just necessarily uh, facilitate like, Muslim shoppers but also workers in the shopping centre who yep. might have a lunch break and, and during their lunch break wanted to take five minutes out to go and pray. For example, you could have multilingual signage that would operate on touch screens so that people knew where things were and you could have them in the several languages as opposed to having pamphlets and leaflets, which are you know, not as not as green or efficient, mm-hmm. having touch screens available where people could access information in at least four or five of the main community languages. Ensure that your centre management staff would were also employed from diverse backgrounds, so they could also assist people with in- inquiries. You also work in intersectional discrimination, which occurs when someone is discriminated against because of the combination of two or more protected bases. So, for example, national origin and race. What are some other barriers that restrict access for different people? I was at a forum um, a few years back where you're talking about getting the gender ratio right. And about, you know, we don't have enough females in management, on boards, etc. And I remember very clearly someone in the audience, I think she was of a Middle Eastern background, she put up her hand and said, look, I get what you're saying and I'm hearing what you're saying about the struggle for there to be equal representation of women at management level. But how about, you know, when we talk about people of cultural diverse backgrounds, getting that representation up as well? And the person on the panel actually said, and I'll, she turned around and said, well, we, we can't deal with that till we get the gender right. And... That was that was her actual response, and this was a highly, highly, you know, highly respected, successful mm-hmm. Australian lawyer who who made that comment, and that particular response to me reeked of privilege because I don't think she understood that that kind of response that she was giving to someone from a diverse community is the same kind of mantra that women have been listening to since the sixties when they've talked about gender equality, and men saying, well, "Wait your turn," 
and when we're ready, we can, we can come to the table. And then this woman was saying to the woman of colour, saying, well, you know, you, you wait your turn. When we're ready, we'll call you up. I said, this is part of what's wrong, A, with second wave feminism and B, with the way that we review diversity as too hard box and something that can't be incorporated from the beginning when it should be. Yep. Do you feel that we're, we're on a, a path of that equalisation being closer? In fact, this is a career for me as opposed to just something that I would have, you know, maybe read about 20 years ago. Yeah, right. Okay. I think one of the opportunities that I've had in the last few years is to be included on boards where I admit I am the only non-white on a board, for example, but there is there's acknowledgement from the board level that we're not going to actually affect change on the ground until we affect change in the way we think. And one of the adages that I sort of talk about when I do cultural competencies is you can't be who you can't see, right? So... People aren't going to aspire professionally for organ, you know, for 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 a role if they don't see people like them necessarily in it. And you know, I can't count the number of times when there has been a successful woman of diversity who's reached a board appointment or a CEO appointment, and the responses, if you if you read the comments, are like, "Oh wow, this is something that I could actually do." Coming from a young girl, or girls in schools, where I've given presentations saying. Wow, I'd never thought that I could, you know, aspire for a role in media mm-hmm. or diversity, but now that I've seen you do it, da, da, da. so it, it, representation matters. It's aspirational, but it also changes the way that you think, and it changes the way that you plan, and therefore it changes the outcomes that you have. There's been quite a lot of awareness around diversity and inclusion recently. In your lifetime, what changes have you witnessed, and what sort of change do you see coming in the near future? Are you optimistic? still a lot of privilege and comfort zones that we need to tackle because of parochially this is how it's always been done kind of mindset and that is a hard wall to come up against but I'm really optimistic I know that millennial generation get a bad rap and I've, I've done it myself a number of times <laughs> but um, they, they actually get diversity as part of who we are. Suds also spoke to Graham Innes, a company director, lawyer, public speaker and human rights practitioner. Graham has served as Australia's Human Rights Commissioner, as the Disability Discrimination Commissioner and Race Discrimination Commissioner. He was born blind and has played a significant role advocating for human rights and disability initiatives. Graham, you've spent many years advocating on behalf of people from minority groups, including those with disability for equal rights. Can you tell us what differences are an inclusively designed space can have on a person's life? Well, if you have an inclusively designed space, it's one of the things that indicates to you as a member of society that you're included in society. For minority groups such as people with disabilities, um, creating a space in a particular way is excluding or or including. For instance, I can't see, so... A very echoey, noisy space is problematic for me. I mean, our, our railway stations in Sydney are the classic example where there are lots of announcements. The announcements are very useful, of course, so you need those. But there's lots of train noise. And then the designers or the operators add to that by having blaring televisions on the platforms. I've never understood why they can't have the volume turned down and the captions on, which yeah. would make the places far better to navigate for me. Would you say that some spaces provide a little bit of anxiety or you, you feel uneasy in certain area, elements within areas? Oh, no, absolutely. Spaces can make you anxious um, depending on the nature of your disability. You know, in my case, very noisy environments make me anxious because I can't 
determine where I am and what's going on around me. Obviously, compliance with the um, access standards is absolutely uh, a requirement. Mm -hmm. And um, so those standards really only apply to inside buildings, but they should be equally applied to outside spaces. Uh, so, um, you know, ramped access rather than steps, tactile ground surface indicators, rails on staircases so that people uh, with mobility issues or people who may not be as steady as, yep. as others um, have a rail to hang on to. They're all in the basic um, access requirement. But good designers um, need to go a lot further than that. So they need to think about the impact of their design on ambient noise. If you compare um, you know, a, a restaurant with a whole lot of hard surfaces, um, s such as tiles, um, hard surfaced walls, um, and and uh, non-acoustic ceilings, mm -hmm. as compared to a restaurant, you know, with carpet and soft furnishings, the more comfortable place will be the second restaurant because the noise doesn't Resident. preclude conversation, but also doesn't preclude independent movement around the restaurant. And do you think you said you know there are basic requirements that architects and engineers need to to meet? Do you think that we are doing enough or that we, we've got opportunity to do more than what we currently do in, in design? Oh, we've got opportunity to do far more than we do. Um, so um, we could make paths of travel easier. I mean, supermarkets, and I know why they do this, but you can't walk straight through a supermarket. You have to walk around things. Now, um, that's because they want people to see as many of their products and buy as many of their products. I understand the logic, but that's very restricting. Uh, for a person who um, can't see well or for a person with mobility disabilities, particularly in narrow aisles. So in fact, what you're doing is excluding people from those supermarkets by designing in a way which you, th which you think will attract customers. As you were born blind, which you alluded to earlier, I'm sure you've encountered all kinds of environments. Can you tell us about your experience over the years? Uh, for me as a person who's blind, uh, noisy environments are significantly problematic. Um, both because I can't hear conversations which are taking place, but also I can't hear all of the noises around me which, t which give me lots of different pieces of information. But for other people with other disabilities, the issues are different. For people with autism, uh, strobing or flashing lighting or lots of noise can be a, um, an unwanted stimulus. For people with hearing impairments, getting information visually is really important. Look, in many respects, access is better but in some respects it's got worse. Building development, and I'm not saying we don't have to develop buildings, but we do have to think about um, when we do work, the times that work is done, and the noise that it uh, creates. Uh, we need to think about uh, lighting. We need to think about obstructions on footpaths, for instance. What are your thoughts about accessibility smartphone apps? Well, technology is a great advantage for people with disabilities, but often, unfortunately, the designers of technology exclude us, only listing uh, whether the entrance to a building is accessible, not talking about things like um, toilet facilities. There are some very good apps um, for wayfinding for uh, people with various disabilities, mm -hmm. but they need beacons to be installed in the buildings or they need um, <clears throat> some other form of, of support through video type apps which allow you to connect um, via video uh, with an agent who can give you information about the building and guide you through obstacles etc. And sounds like that there are you know the, the technology is great but it comes in in different components so you know you can have a smartphone app that gives you the information but as you said you need you need you know technology within the building to help support people. 
Sometimes, or you can have a smartphone app that will give you information if you could use it, but the disability access requirements aren't followed, so um, the screen isn't configured appropriately or um, the app doesn't give you output via voice, it only gives it a screen-based output. So this is all up to designers. These things can be fixed, but yep. they need to be thought of at the beginning. For apps and websites, there are standards which detail how apps can be uh, developed um, so that they include everyone so they don't exclude uh, people with uh, vision or sensory disabilities. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, these standards are not always followed by the app designers. Um, I'm a company director and I sit on uh, two or three boards uh, and none of those boards have been able to find uh, an app that works for me. They work for all the other board members, but they're very much print and vision based and uh, they haven't taken into account the braille and the voice technology, which is available in phones. So all of that is there, yep. but the designers haven't thought to put to include it. So it's really important to take UX into account, user experience, yep. um, and to make sure that that user experience includes all members of the community, not just members of the community who don't have disabilities. Yeah, so taking that proactive approach rather than a reactive approach for, for, for groups. The benefit that we get from that is that we, when we include everyone in a society and when we engage with all members of society, we actually get a far more effective and a far better functioning society. So we don't reinforce disadvantage or marginalisation, we actually decrease it. And, and all of the research shows that greater equality means that economies work better. So um, design has a, is a factor in, in achieving equality. I think that's, that's, that's spot on and, and, and I'd say... After this podcast, people will be knocking on your door to uh, to help with with looking at designs and functionality and flow and what what we need to consider across all all the various areas. Well, of course, I'm just one person with one particular disabilities, and I would encourage people not to knock on my door, but to knock on the door of the organisations who represent people with those disabilities. Thank you, Graham, for your time today. Really good to get some feedback from people in in your walk of life and in your community something that we will consider with our designs and designers in general. No, no, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Don't forget to share this episode on social media and leave a review for us where you're listening. We want to know what you think. Tell a friend or colleague about us. They can find the podcast by searching Engineering Reimagined wherever they listen to podcasts.